Okay, let's get this web conference underway. We'll start with the karakia. Unu hia te pō, te pō wherimarama. Tomakia te ao, te ao whatutangata. Tātai ki runga, tātai ki raro, tātai ahurau. Amie, huie, tai Kia ora koutou and welcome to the Natural Hazards Virtual Field Trip, which is supported by EQC. And right now you are at the Tūrangi Volcanic Centre. So you can see behind us a bit of a display, uh, which is showing a film about some of the volcanic activity around the Taupo Volcanic Zone. Um, so you'll be able to see that in the background. Um, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it more closely and, and my That's experts here are telling me that it's Christchurch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at that. Yes, it is. I should know that because I was in the Christchurch earthquake. <laughs> so lots of background information about earthquakes and volcanoes and all sorts because kind of regardless of where you live in New Zealand, there's always something happening in terms of geohazards. I'm sure there'll be something about Tūrangi later on. We'll see. Anyway. Uh, welcome along to our speaking schools. We've got Havelock North High School and we've got Belmont School and lots of listening schools, which is fantastic to see. And of course, we've got a variety of experts with us this morning that are going to be answering your questions. We've got Bubs here. What about? And I'll give everybody oh, a chance and to. Kevin. And Kevin. <laughs> Kevin from Sacred Heart School, yes. <laughs> Um, I'll just go round round the room and then I'll give everybody a chance to introduce themselves. I'm sure the ambassadors will have something to say as well. So we've got Bubs there, Kehoroa, myself, Shelley, the Learns teacher, Graham, and Ben. So we'll start with Bubs. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do, Bubs? Uh, morning, everyone. So I I live in Tūrangi <laughs> in central North Island. Um, uh, part of my role was looking around safety of um, our locals, um, as well as uh, a lot of visitors that we get into the district, uh, especially around the National Park, but also around Lake Topo. Morena Tamariki, my name's Kiharua, I live in Rotorua, uh, and my work revolves around anything to do with the Ao Māori, and most recently, finding links between um, Māori Pūdako and Western science. And Graham. Uh, kia ora. So my name's Graham. I'm at GNS Science. I make volcano maps and understand kind of the life histories of volcanoes. And I'm in our volcano monitoring team. And Ben. Kia ora. I'm Ben from the University of Canterbury. I like doing crazy experiments and exploring and having fun on volcanoes. And you may actually remember Ben from our trip to Iceland last year where we were comparing some of the experiences that they have over there with volcanoes compared to New Zealand and you might remember Graham from the what's the plan stand field trip so uh, do check out those field trips if you haven't seen them before lots of good information on those as well so uh, the only, only only thing we haven't done is introduce our ambassadors so we've got Pippi from Waipippi School the Tuatara from. Um, I need to look at my sheet to remember where Totara is from. Where is he from? He is from Papa Kofi School. So I'm not sure where the Papa Kofi is joining us this morning, but a big hello from Totara. We've got Maya 
the cheeky Learns Ambassador. Always has something to say. And Kevin, the field from Sacred Heart School. So they're all very chatty because they've had a fantastic time traveling across part of the Taupo super volcano. And it was amazing how long it took just to travel part of it yesterday. And you can follow that journey in the videos which are online for you today. So we'll uh, get underway with questions and our speaking schools, if you can remember to say your first name to know who we're talking to. Okay, we'll get started with uh, Belmont School. Belmont School, can we have your first question, please? And my name is Paige, and my question is, how many people will be involved in the monitoring of the volcanoes in New Zealand? I can take that one. Kia ora. Okay, so I'm in our volcano monitoring team, so I guess that one falls to me. We at GNS have about 20 people involved in volcano monitoring, and they do lots of different things. So I'm, I'm a geologist. I go around with a, with a rock hammer and a sledgehammer and take samples of rocks. Uh, we've got people who look at earthquakes, people who look at the way the ground deforms with magma underground, and we've, we've even got chemists who look at the chemistry of hot springs and rocks. But we also have a much bigger family. So people like Ben to my right at the University of Canterbury, he's one of our scientists with his own specialty. And, and all up across all the universities and in GNS, there's more than 40 or maybe 50 people involved to support our volcano monitoring. So it takes lots and lots of different kinds of science. Mm, and I'm sure, Bubs, you've had as a local person of just getting a bit of an interference from a school that needs to mute their microphone, please. We, we just end up hearing your background noise and we there can't hear people talking. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. So hopefully you heard what Bubs had to say there. Uh, moving on now to question number one from Havelock North High School, please. Cablock North, have we got you there? You'll need to be really close. Oh, no, I missed that. You need to be right up to the laptop for us to be able to hear you. Uh. Hi, I'm Fergus, and I wanted to know if ash freezes if it's too high in the atmosphere. Thanks, Fergus. I'll take that one as well. Okay, so it's a, that's a great question. Um, so ash, ash in big, big, big volcano eruptions, uh, you can get ash convecting way up into the atmosphere and even sometimes into the stratosphere. And yes, when it gets up high enough, the temperature up there is freezing and the ash and everything that's erupting, all the water vapor and the gases, everything's freezing cold. And what? The 
is the uh, the ash will actually form into little balls that grow and grow and grow, just like hailstones. They're like ash hailstones. We call them accretionary lapilli because they're lapilli just means a little grain that's thrown out of a volcano, and they accrete. All the ash clings together and freezes together as ash hailstones. And in the super, lots of water went up with lots of ash, and there are heaps of these uh, ash hailstones in the ash all around Kokor from that eruption going way up in the atmosphere and freezing. So you're right on the money. Wow, yeah, it's, it's something that you really need to think about. So that's a great question. Um, it is really important, people, that you keep your microphones muted, otherwise we just can't hear each other properly. So Hi, Nepple. Hello. That's perfect. Um, it's, that's much better, thank you. <laughs> okay, we are now moving to question number two from Belmont School, please. Hello, my name is Liam and my question, <laughs> and my question is, my question is, what technology do you think? Hey, just leave it. No. What Hey, I'm really sorry about that. Um, when we find out who's uh, playing around with their microphone, we might have to kick them off the conference. So yeah, I've done done with one of them. All the people from Woodhull, it was just one um, that was turning the microphone on and off as I was trying to mute them. So I've kicked them out for now. Um, the rest of you are doing a really good job. Thank you. Yeah. It, it is so good to see so many people here, but if we don't uh, follow the rules, it's really hard for us to hear each other. So thank you so much for those that are listening really well. So sorry about that, Belmont School. Can you please repeat your question number two, please? Okay. My name is Liam, and my question is, what technology do you think is available? You really made yourself a horrible person. Thanks, Liam, and thanks for your patience. Um, Barry in the Loons office is dealing with all these screens and finding out who's not, not behaving. Why is everybody coming over here? Okay, so we, we, we did hear your question. And Ben's pretty keen to answer that one, so thank you. Hey Liam, that's an awesome question, and I love dreaming about what might be happening in the future. Um, and I'm really lucky that I have a lab um, where we can test all sorts of crazy new ways to monitor. And I, I work together with Graham and people at GNS to test some of these ideas. So some of the things that we do is um, we can remote sensing so basically being able to watch volcanoes from the sky or from space i think that's where the future of volcano monitoring is um, so flying drones um, around volcanoes using them to monitor gas using them to take videos um, to measure defamation and even take samples and even take mm -hmm. samples yep uh, gns science have been working on almost like a little robot scooping drone um, together with the engineering department in the University of Canterbury for being able to scoop up ash um, and go to dangerous places. So that's one way. Also um, using fiber optics. So up till now we've been limited by a few stations placed around a volcano, but if you can use fiber optics, this can actually monitor continuously the whole length of the fiber. So you're not just getting signals from a few spots, 
getting continuous signals. So I just love dreaming up uh, new ways and working with teams to think about new things. And I think Kiaroa has yeah. some. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So this is a really cool question because um, one of the things that Māori used to do was actually watch the animals. So I like it how in your question there you've asked how do we keep the animals safer? Well, actually in Te Ao Māori, the animals keep us safe. And if we know how to read the signs, if you know how to watch the kia, like Maya here, or the other birds or animals, what you'll find is that they tend to fly away, or they act quite strange during, um, at times that eruptions, or any kind of weather anomalies, really. Um, so if we learn to watch the animals, uh, the animals can actually give us a lot of warnings and a lot of signs that things are going to happen. Mm, good points. Thank you. And now, I think it's question number two from Havelock. North High School, please. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. I was wondering how water fills up the caldera. Ah, how, does, how does water fill up the caldera? <clears throat> oh, so um, it's over a long, long period of time when that water, so a lot of rain comes in and that, all the rivers and streams and that pull up into it. So if you look at Lake Topol, where it currently is today, um, the lake level, it was a lot higher than that. Um, and then over a period of time, the, the river broke out and um, caused the Waikato River. Um, it was actually went uh, towards Kimsway um, um, at one stage and that on there. And then when that eruption happens on from that caldera, all of that ash and that goes out, but then all that water actually finds its way back into that lake again as well. And then over a period of time, it just starts that cycle again of more rain, more streams feeding into that cold area. Yeah, it's quite, quite a long process to make that happen. And now we're up to question three from Belmont School, please. Hi, my name is Robbie, and my question is, can you cook a meal in the hot pools at the top of a volcano? Oh, well, that sounds like a good use of natural energy, doesn't it? Bubs. Um, so you can cook it, um, but because it's at the top of a volcano, it's quite sulfuric and that on there, so it wouldn't really taste that nice and that on there. So especially for Māori, we've learned to use the, the thermal pools at lower altitudes, so like in Rotorua, um, Takanu and then on there, um, so it's not as sulfuric, but um, you could cook it, but yeah, I wouldn't be tasting that up there. Yeah, you might get a flavour that you don't quite <laughs> like. Plenty of salt. Salt fixes everything. Okay, question number three now from Havelock North. Hi, I'm Toby, and I was wondering how hot the magma is under the chamber in Taupo. Kia ora, Tony. Good question. Yeah, great question. Um, so what we can do is we can look at rock and crystals that have erupted in the past, and you can use those like little thermometers, and they tell us that... Under Taupo, there's probably two types of magma. There's some, some magma that's about seven or 800 degrees. So that's pretty hot, but that's not as hot as the magma that's way deeper underneath and is really charging the magma chamber, which might be more than 1,000 degrees C or 1,200 degrees C. So pretty hot down there. 
Indeed, very hot. Lots of energy. Okay, uh, next question from Belmont School, please. Hi, my name is Bonnie, and my question is What would New Zealand's most active or dangerous volcano be? Mm, that would be good to know, wouldn't it? Any ideas, guys? I'll have a crack at that. That's a big question. Uh, okay, so I, I guess it depends what you mean by active. Uh, if you're thinking about how often a volcano erupts, probably at the moment, White Island or Fakari is the uh, is the most frequently active volcano. Had eruption, a couple of eruptions in the last five or six years. Uh, Ruapehu, before that, up till about 1995-96, was erupting pretty frequently. And actually, until 1975, Narahoi was the most frequently active volcano, and it's gone quiet for a little bit, but we're watching it. If you, but if you want to think about how much gets erupted, the most active volcano on the planet is actually the uh, the supervolcano system from Topo through to Tarawera. So that is the big brother to Yellowstone. Now it doesn't erupt every year or even every century, but in the long term, it erupts way more magma in total than any of the other volcanoes on the planet. Wow, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Um, and it, it's interesting that you can measure that um, activity in different ways. So whether it's that it just erupts often or whether it's how much it erupts. So. Yeah, interesting to think about that question in different ways. And next question now from Havelock High School, please. Um, hi, I'm Erin, and I was wondering how do geologists measure whether the volcano is erupting? When a volcano is going to erupt. Well, should we share that one? Talk about it a little bit. Yeah, that's a hard question to answer. Start, you start, Ben. <laughs> um, probably um, the so geologists. So uh, I'm a geologist, so I love rocks. And but turns out geologists are pretty useless at working out when a volcano will erupt. That's when you actually need the geophysicists. And these are the guys with the fingers on the pulse of the volcano. And, and really it's these small earthquakes that are the best way. And you can see these earthquakes gradually getting, starting off deep and gradually getting shallower. Not only are they getting shallower, they tend to get more often and maybe bigger. And there are different types of earthquakes. There are some earthquakes from rocks cracking, like pow! And then there are some earthquakes from fluid and magma moving up through these cracks and these are more like to get these different types of earthquakes. Ben's selling himself a little bit short because if you think of a volcano like a patient in hospital, the geophysicists are, are kind of like the people listening to the stethoscope or looking at the blood pressure, but it's really important to know the life history of your patient as well and even what species they are. And that's where the geologists like Ben and me come in. So we we can tell you what it is and what it's done in the past, and we mix that up with, with listening to those signals to try and work out and give a forecast of what might happen in the future. It's really important to know, though, the smallest eruptions from the really active volcanoes, like the summit of Ruapehu or Fakari, uh, they can just be from the, the geothermal system, the hot water and steam system really close to the ground, suddenly going unstable and going bang, and we can't always forecast that. So you do always have to look at the natural signs as well when you're really close, you're on the ski areas or you're on the top of the volcano or you're out at Fakari and make your own reactions. If you see something happening, take off. We can't always forecast it for you. Yeah, yeah, very important, um, especially for people that live in the area and use the manga, that you read those signs. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, especially, so birds are a big one. Birds are quite easy to see because they fly and you only have to look up. But if um, any of you are hunters, then if the pigs start sort of running wildly and they're acting a bit funny, not usual, then that's a good sign that something's going to happen. Generally, animals are super in tune with what's going on in the earth. Um, so they'll know long, long before we will, possibly before the, the, the scientists will, um, and they will be the first thing. If you see those animals acting up or doing something kind of odd, then that's a sign that something's coming. And if you spend a lot of time in an area, you get really attuned to the environment, so you start to see if there's little changes. So it's always important to be aware of those. Don't rely on technology, because it, it doesn't always get it right. Okay, and that brings us to the last question of our formal web conference. Question number five from Belmont School, please. Hi, my name's Dylan, and my question is, do other countries study our volcanoes? If so, why? That's a really good question, Dylan. Yeah, Dylan. Um, our volcanoes attract scientists from all over the world because, one, they are beautiful. Um, I think, two, they are special. And three, they're really active compared to a lot of other places. So I've got lots of mates all over the world from England, from Canada, from everywhere that come here um, and they, they will come and they'll meet Graham and me and we'll take them out and we'll show them show them our volcanoes, we'll go to GNS. Um, yeah, so I think that's, it's, it's a special place and maybe you guys want to add to that. So earlier this year, um, got to host uh, a whole heap of scientists. I think they're from eight different countries. Um, Lake Taupo for everybody um, is kind of the rock star of, of volcanoes, <laughs> and, and 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 so you get people from Italy, from um, North America, South America, Japan, and then on there, and they all grow up learning about Lake Taupo, and a big opportunity for them to come to this place. Um, no, they just they just love it. Um, a lot of similarities, so Lake Taupo, uh, a little place called Naples in Italy, um, very similar. They have uh, a lot of people that live around the caldera, um, and so we swap kind of um, uh, what we're learning, and um, it's really good to actually learn from them as well. So, yeah, uh, there's a lot of exchange in that. I think. So a lot of interest from internationals. Mm, it's interesting, sometimes you take for granted what is in your own backyard um, and it was interesting to go to Iceland and compare with Ben um, some of the things that were happening there and learning from the people of Iceland because they've been living with volcanoes for a really long time as well. So yeah, lots to be learned across the world and information to be shared. Well, fantastic effort from Belmont School and Havelock North High School this morning. Thank you so much for your really interesting questions. Big round of applause to you guys. Well done. Good stuff. And of course, a big thank you to our experts. Well done, guys. Really great answers this morning. Really enjoyed hearing about all the info that you've shared. Good stuff. And now we're going to move to some informal questions. Our ambassadors are enjoying the limelight here. <laughs> uh, if you go down to the bottom of your screen, you'll see a little chat pod. If you click on that, you can then type in questions. And Barry from the Loons office is going to read out um, some of the questions, a selection. 
if your question isn't answered, remember you can join us again tomorrow for the last web conference to ask more questions. But in the meantime, we're going to stick around for a few minutes. The ambassadors are super keen um, to hear your questions. Barry. So there's some good ones in here going from early to late, but um, this one's been asked in two different ways. But what happens to pyroclastic flows when they cool down? So what do they form into and what are the effects? Ah, well, we, we did a pretty interesting video that showed some of that yesterday. Yeah, so that might be online already yes. now, hopefully. I mean, the, when they cool down, they form they form a rock, and it, it's the one rock that got named by a New Zealander. It's called ignimbrite, which just means, um, I guess, you know, hot rock. The um, the the rock is uh, is a mixture of ash and pumice that's kind of consolidated. Sometimes it's quite loose and soft. And on the big drive we did uh, yesterday to come down here, we drove through some areas where the landscape's really hilly and and has been eroded lots because the ignimbrite's really soft, but other times it's super hard, like um, uh, up around Mamaku Plateau, up behind Rotorua, and it forms bluffs and cliffs and things like that. But it, it's really hard to imagine when you see that ignimbrite, what it formed from, and it formed from this massive hot cloud uh, shooting across the landscape, and then that condensed down and solidified as, as a rock and, and made huge flat landscapes. Yes, I think it's one of the most diverse rock types it can be it's one of the hardest ones for my students to learn because sometimes you can touch it and it's all crumbly it's just a bunch of ash and sometimes it can even turn into obsidian so it can turn to volcanic glass and there are some great examples here in New Zealand where a pyroclastic flow has transformed from a bunch of ash and pumice into pure volcanic glass which is amazing and that's because it was so hot when it was laid down that all the little shards of pumice and the pieces of pumice melted back together to form that glass. Oh, it's, it's really in, intriguing to hear about that transformation due to the heat and, and forces behind it all. So it must be quite tricky as a volcanologist to identify all those different types of rock and think about what's happened to them. It was one of the last thing, one of the last puzzles to get worked out for a long time. No one understood what those rocks were here in New Zealand. That's how we got to name them. Oh, that's pretty cool. Okay, next question, Barry. Yes, there's one from Hannah from Te Farikura or Arafinawa. The question is, did Natoroirangi send heat to Tamatia in the South Island, Christchurch? Oh, ah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the springs. Yeah, the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, I don't have the full Pudako, but um, what I'm hearing in the background, uh, just behind, uh, in, well, actually in front of, behind the computer, <laughs> is that um, uh, he sent fire down to Hamna Springs um, to give heat to uh, Pōkai Whenua. That's the one, Tamatea Pōkai Whenua. Um, yeah, and that was also through Karakia. Um, so the same way he did Karakia to bring the fire here, um, that was the same way that he sent it down to Tamatea Pōkai Whenua. There's one from Corey, um, sort of like yesterday. What supervolcano made the biggest super eruption and when? <clears throat> we know that Topo is the most recent big one, but what's the biggest one they know about? Oh, any, any what would you want to say? Ideas? 
they argue about people it. argue about this <laughs> everybody wants to have the biggest <laughs> volcano in their back garden yeah. um and it depends how back in time you you go yeah and the further back we go we can find hints of enormous eruptions that dwarf anything that we've experienced or even that we know about so i think that i mean yellowstone is a is a nice um example that people are kind of familiar with it's had yeah it's had a big eruption in the past big probably bigger than what we've had here we i mean we measure it in cubic kilometers of magma erupted that's how big these eruptions are so to be super it needs to be more than 500 cubic kilometers 500 cubes a kilometer wide kilometer deep kilometer high of magma erupted into the atmosphere uh, we've had four of them here. Topor is the most recent, or the Aruna eruption forming Topor. Uh, but the biggest is probably uh, the Fakamaru eruption about 350,000 years ago, which was even bigger. But that's dwarfed by the biggest one at Yellowstone. Yeah, and then even you go, I know there's some examples in Colorado, which is yeah. tens of millions of years ago that are even bigger than Yellowstone. So there's, yeah. Ours have pushed up into the, you know, above a thousand cubic kilometers, but theirs are into the several thousand cubic kilometers but they're way back in time as well. And there's some in Africa I know that I've read about recently that could be even bigger, oh. so. Well, that is mind boggling. But you heard yesterday also the fact that to have such a massive eruption, it takes years to build up that much magma and there's no signs of that. That's right. So we're, we're almost certain that there isn't a, a big layer of magma down in that eruptable zone four or five, six kilometers down, and it would take multiple lifetimes, one, two, three generations for that magma to build up and we'd see it building up. So it's an exciting thing to learn about and we can feel safe and confident that we're not gonna go super in our lifetimes. Yeah, I always think it'd be really interesting to uh, have something like volcanic years. You know how you have dog years? <laughs> <laughs> it would be good to know sort of a, a comparative because those years that we're talking about are just mind-bogglingly long. So it is good to know that we've got a superstar in our backyard, a super volcano, but it's not about to get really fierce anytime soon. Not to say that it won't have little eruptions. But that's right, yep. And that's what we spend most of our time trying to be prepared for. Mm, really important that we are prepared for those, especially if we live in the shadow of these volcanoes. Okay, any other questions, Barry? Lots. So, um, I'm going to, uh, kids are right into it today. This is great. So, I'm going to sort of combine one from Totara and Indira. So, why doesn't hot molten lava stop when water's poured on top of it? And if, if it does, is our New Zealand lava different from other parts of the world? Well, you've poured water on lava, right? <laughs> Yes. Um, so yeah, I have because oh, I like doing crazy experiments. <laughs> I have made my own lava in the lab and poured water on it, and yep, it does cool. Um, and me and Shelley had an amazing experience when we went off to Iceland, um, uh, and we learned about a whole town uh, on the um, on the Vestmanjur Islands, who. Uh, there was a volcano erupting in their back garden and the lava was coming down into their town and threatening to close off their harbor and they the whole town they all there was i think more than 50 people working 24 hours for several months with giant fire hoses spraying water on these lava flows that were coming down 
into their, literally into their back gardens and closing off their harbour. Um, and they successfully um, kept the harbour open just by all this hard work. We never know for sure whether if the volcano had kept erupting, whether they would have lost that battle, but they, their hard work and it seemed to have worked and they seemed to have to either stopped or diverted the advancement of that lava by, by cooling it down. That island is called, or that eruption and island is called Haimei, H-E-I-M-A-E-Y. So that's worth looking up. We use that as the best example of what an eruption in Auckland might look like. So your other part of the question was, what's different around the world? Well, we think Haimei is a really good example of what would happen if we got an eruption in Auckland City. So go look at the pictures, they're stunning. And our videos. Uh, yep, and these guys have got videos. Um, the New Zealand is blessed with a wide range of volcanoes. So actually we've got the same types of volcanoes as most other places in the world. The only exception are shield volcanoes like Hawaii. So these big, smooth shield volcanoes with little cones all over them happen out in the middle of the ocean, away from plate boundaries. And we don't have any active shield volcanoes at the moment. That's about the only kind we don't have. Mm. And yeah, check out that um, stuff from Jaime, the Iceland field trip last year. You can find that on the field trip chooser. Um, Natural Hazards 2018, fantastic trip. And you'll be able to see the photos. It was incredible to see the lava sort of frozen in time, just right beside people's houses. <laughs> it was incredible. And another question, Barry. Yes, another one from uh, Totoro 1 and 3. Are our volcanoes all the same temperature? And if not, which is the hottest? That's from Ryan. Oh, that is a very good question. You want to start off on that one? I can start off and Greg can chip in. So um, we have these different types of magma in New Zealand. And we have the rhyolite magma, which is seven or 800 degrees. We have andesite, which is more like eight or 900 degrees. And we have basalt as well. And basalt, probably Auckland is the best example of several basaltic eruptions in New Zealand and that I would actually I hate to say it but I think Auckland might be winning the hottest magma competition in New Zealand at the moment I don't know what you want to add yeah, to that that's true. <laughs> no you're on the money when we uh, when we go down to to Papa uh, tomorrow and you'll see the videos after that we've actually built an exhibit where you can make all these different types of magma by turning the temperature and the um, and the and the different types of material up inside the magma, the amount of silica and the amount of gas, and you can see how these different rocks are made. Yep, Ben is a, an avid cook. <laughs> he, he loves to play with volcanic rocks and make rocks and do all sorts of things. So we're looking forward to trying out one of his rock recipes <laughs> tomorrow. Um, I've, I've heard not so much in the kitchen because volcanologists tend to burn. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, time for uh, just a few more questions. Yep. Um, another one from Toto working my way down. Can you name any elements that are active inside of a volcano? Now, I think they mean like elements like iron and aluminium or goodness knows what. And there's another one further down. Is there any metal that can actually survive la lava, the heat of lava? No, it's really interesting because when you're... I look at pictures of, you know, what's happening yeah. under the Earth's crust and I just see this orange magma, you know, and I don't think about necessarily what's in it. 
I might start with chemistry and, and you're the one who takes metal and tries to <laughs> tries to pick up bits of lava. So uh, yes, there's a lot of different chemistry in rocks. The main thing is silica, silicon dioxide. So that's just like beach sand and it's the main constituent of, uh, of the crust and of, and of lava. Uh, basalt has, because it's kind of, it's kind of black because it's got a lot of iron and magnesium in it. And it's actually kind of the origin magma for all the other types as well. So somewhere like Auckland, you're getting, you're getting that kind of source black magma with lots of iron and magnesium coming all the way to the surface. Whereas here in the super volcano system, uh, it's come up and it's lost a lot of the iron and magnesium. And, it's, and so it's even, it's even more silica. And uh, that's why the rocks are quite cream colored and white because they've left the dark colored iron and magnesium behind. The cone volcanoes are somewhere in between. So Ruapehu, Tongariro, uh, Fakari, those, uh, they're kind of halfway between basalt and rhyolite. They're kind of mid-gray color, and they've got a moderate amount of iron and magnesium in them. Yeah, and if you want to find different um, metals for playing with lava, so I love playing with lava, I have literally stuck a spade, a spade just brought in kind of bunnings into a lava flow in Hawaii when we were taking samples. And because the lava flow actually cooled so fast onto the spade, the spade itself didn't melt and that formed this crust around the lava. So inside the lava would have been hot enough to melt that, um, that spade, but because it cooled so fast, it was actually really good for scooping lava samples up and we were watching how the bubbles were growing and escaping out of these, um, out of these, uh, these bits of lava. But there's also a crazy plan in Iceland and we were learning about this and that plan is to drill into a magma chamber in Iceland. And I've been part of a group who have been researching all sorts of um, different alloys, so different mixtures of metal, so involving nickel and tungsten and different proportions of different metals, because they've got to design a drill bit that can drill into a, into a magma chamber. And we've even got a game that if any of you schools want to play this game, we've developed a game called Magma Drillers Save Planet Earth. And as, as part of that game, you have to work as a team and you have to, one of the things you have to do is choose what type of drill bit you should use. So uh, you can keep that in mind. Yeah, and I'm sure you'd know really quickly if you chose the wrong kind, so just melt or on fire or something <laughs> it would not be good awesome thanks ben and graham so uh two more questions i think <clears throat> okay um there's a similar vein running through about um so how do volcanoes get bigger and can you have two separate volcanoes form in the same place mm. Yeah, so um, Intel Māori volcanoes are actually living living beings. We think they're alive. We treat them like people. And so just like people, volcanoes grow as well. Um, and you can definitely get uh, volcanoes sitting next to each other in a very close vicinity to each other. And the way we look at it is they're like, um, you have your super, super volcanoes, which is like mum and dad, and then you have all your little volcanoes in between, which are like the kids. They're all brothers and sisters and cousins and things like that. Um, and then... Uh, after some of my chats that I had with Graham yesterday, if you go out a bit further outside of the super volcanoes, then you get uncle and auntie. And, and so you get this big family of volcanoes that sometimes they sit quite close to each other. And just like your, our families in real life, sometimes they live quite far away. 
So you might have family members who live right next door, or you might have family members who live in Aussie, and it's the same with volcanoes. Well, that's that's how we look at it, anyways. Mm, and, Australia and does have some volcanoes. Just don't tell them about it. <laughs> Yeah, and it's a really good way to think about it because all our volcanoes are connected. They're all connected to the same sort of processes. And last question, please, Barry. Are there places where, vol this is from Tultra, where volcanoes cannot form or don't tend to form? Well, we've blown the theory of Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so in the long term, the answer is probably no. Like volcanoes can crop up pretty much anywhere in geological time, but that's back tens or hundreds of millions of years. But generally, at any one time, it's really rare to have volcanoes in the middle of the tectonic plates. So the Pacific Ocean is one massive tectonic plate spreading apart. It's got a, it's got a little mid-ocean ridge, which is kind of where new magma is making the plate. But between that ridge and the edges, like New Zealand or South America or, or Alaska, there's almost no volcanoes. The only exception are hotspots. And do you want to kind of explain how a hotspot works? Yeah, so hotspots are where plumes of molten magma are rising from deep, deep in the earth, right down near the core of the earth. These are coming from there and they're rising up and they're reaching the surface. Um, and the plates don't really care about these things. The plates just cruise by and these hotspots just pop up at the surface. And that's like Hawaii, which is right in the middle of the Pacific plate, nowhere near a plate boundary, mm. but that's because it's being fed by one of these deep mantle plumes. And, and these are actually, there's, there's tens of these plumes all over the planet in different spots, making pimples mm. all over the Earth's surface. Mm. Um, yeah, and just to, just to add into that one, um, so, like I said, we, we believe volcanoes are alive, and in fact, we think they can walk. Um, and so, volcanoes, might not, where they are now, might not necessarily be where they started. Um, and so, a good example is right here when we talk about Pihanga. There was quite a few uh, mountains and volcanoes around here. Pihanga is a, is a beautiful uh, female volcano, and there was a lot of male volcanoes who had a big fight because they wanted to hook up with her. Um, and the ones who lost, they actually moved away. And so you have um, mountains like uh, the Uruwera Ranges, you have uh, Tongariro who won, so he got to hang around here. Um, you've got uh, Taranaki, who, Taranaki Maunga, who moved all the way out to the west. Um, so a lot of the mountains and volcanoes, um, if you look at where they are now, they weren't necessarily there uh, originally. And so in Māori, we believe they can walk. Um, and like Graham said, they're, they're tens of millions of years old. So their steps are probably like take a thousand years to us anyways for one step. Um, but yeah, so volcanoes and Te Ao Māori could possibly crop up anywhere. But where they settle and where they stop and where, they, where we see them now is um, the walk that they've taken. And that's where they've decided to kick back and just to live. Akihoro and I have had a good chat about this and it, the Mataranga Māori of this fits really nicely next to Western science just as long as you think about those long million year time frames yeah. and that might be what those ancient generations are because we know the plate, the, the arc of volcanoes on our plate boundary here goes all the way from Ruapehu to Tonga. We know over millions of years it's migrated so it used to be running through and generating volcanoes in Coromandel and it's slowly moved across so actually the, the Mataranga has some um, really good synergies there. Mm. 
and we know that magma doesn't just move up we know it moves sideways as well and that you know that we we can find as geologists i love finding these these their dikes their frozen pathways of magma and you can get get your hand lens out and look real close and you can see evidence that these move sideways as well as upwards so really consistent with the mari carrera <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so that's all we've got time for this morning. Uh, Koto, well done for all your awesome questions this morning, and a big thank you to our experts' awesome answers as well. Learned heaps. No, thank you, guys. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Remember, you can listen to a recording of this and do check out the videos online. Uh, and we'll see you tomorrow. In the meantime, you can all unmute your microphones and say big goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.